Good morning. Welcome to Axios Today. It's Tuesday, September 29th. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Here's how we're making you smarter today. Life after Roe versus Wade. And today's one big thing is the future of fake news. But first, some situational awareness. We've reached a grim milestone in the global death toll from the coronavirus. One million people. If that wasn't bad enough, the World Health Organization's Dr. Mike Ryan is warning the toll could reach two million. It's certainly unimaginable, but it's not impossible because if we look at losing a million people in nine months and then we just look at the realities of getting vaccine out there in the next nine months, it's a big task for everyone involved. The real question is, are we prepared collectively to do what it takes to avoid that number. Forget bots spreading misinformation. In 2020, journalists are being targeted in sophisticated operations to amplify fake news. Axios' media reporter Sarah Fisher has been covering this, and she's with us now. So if bots are not how disinformation is being spread, how specifically are journalists being targeted? And we saw The Washington Post being targeted last week. Yes. Usually it's smaller news outlets that they're targeting. So maybe local news outlets that are cash strapped and don't have as many resources to fact check things. And once those smaller outlets pick it up and they start to gain steam, then that's when bigger outlets might say, hmm, this is going viral. I might want to look into that. One thing we're seeing this cycle, Nyla, that we didn't see in the past cycle is something called hack and leak campaigns. And this is where malicious actors will strategically look for sensitive materials, whether that's a hacked email or a hacked government document, and then they'll leak these materials to journalists. And sometimes they'll manipulate the materials to include falsehoods. And then instead of them having to distribute the misinformation, vetted journalists are distributing that misinformation. And that's a lot harder to police. So how are tech giants, I'm thinking of Facebook, Twitter, Google, you said this is harder to police. What are they doing? When a vetted journalist is distributing something unknowingly that's disinformation, it's really hard to police them and say that this is bad behavior. So what they're trying to do is work more closely across the board with their peers, with policymakers, with government agencies to swap notes when they're finding these types of operations so that they can take them down faster. And that's a huge difference from 2016. You didn't have Facebook reporting monthly meetings with government agencies with the FBI like they're doing now. This is the morning of the first presidential debate, Sarah. How much are we going to see disinformation coming out of the debate? Well, I expect to see a lot of disinformation because there's been so much leading up to the debate. So I spoke with the editor-in-chief of USA Today, Nicole Carroll, who said that they will be doing live fact checks in their video feeds of the debate. Then you have tech companies like Twitter who said that they're going to be reviewing content, including hashtags and accounts in real time that might be trying to spread misinformation throughout the debate. So you have a bunch of companies, whether they're traditional news companies or tech platforms, that are instituting new programs to fact-check the debate, things that they didn't have in 2016. For the people who are listening, whether you're a serious or a casual consumer of news, this is probably pretty alarming. So what would you say to people who are news consumers? What do they need to know about this? 
You know, for people that are worried about what their debate experience is going to be like, given all the disinformation, I'll say this. We've had disinformation campaigns that have targeted our elections, that have targeted debates for a long time. It's nothing new. But what's different now is that there's a lot of national attention towards the problem. And so media companies are looking to establish fact-checking blogs. That's something they've never done. You see a bunch of news networks that are adding fact-checks in real time during the debates. You know, if you're a news consumer that's concerned about disinformation, I'd say, Find an outlet that you know you can trust, whether that's your local paper or a national outlet that you've had an affinity to or a subscription to for a long time, and really lean on those outlets to make sure that you're getting the facts. I would be cautious around websites that you don't recognize, blogs on the internet or on social media that you'd never seen before. That's typically where disinformation thrives. Sarah Fisher covers media for Axios. We'll be back in 15 seconds with the future of Roe versus Wade. Welcome back to Axios Today. A Supreme Court without Ruth Bader Ginsburg is likely to overturn Roe versus Wade in the next few years. What does that mean for both sides of the abortion debate? That was the topic of Axios on HBO this week. Margaret Taleb is Axios's White House and politics editor, and she's been reporting this out. There are 17 cases moving through the federal system, tracking one way or another to make it to the Supreme Court. It's widely assumed that the next justice could be pivotal in ending the protections of Roe, whether all at once or bit by bit. So what happens? This would then become, to a large degree, a state-by-state decision. So this is a victory lap for women like Marjorie Dannenfeltzer, who's head of the anti-abortion Susan B. Anthony list. And she advised President Trump actually on court picks. What are other activists who are vehemently opposed to abortion hoping will happen here? Returning this decision to the states is exactly where these groups want to be. If this is a decision that is returned to the states rather than lay in the hands of the federal court, more conservative states will have freedom to pass increasingly restrictive laws on fetal heartbeat, on punishments for doctors, on restrictions and regulations that apply to women. And on the other side, Margaret, you spoke with Alexis McGill-Johnson, who's the president of Planned Parenthood. And here's a clip from your HBO interview with her about their shift in strategy, not just at the state level, but what they would do under a Biden-Harris administration. On day one, there are a set of executive orders to undo the, the vast majority of what this administration has done in three short years. If there is a Democratic administration, then they are attempting to look to executive power following, in many ways, the same map that the anti-abortion movement looked to when they pushed President Trump to push very hard using executive power to limit and and further restrict abortion rights. These pro-abortion rights groups are now looking to do just the opposite, and it's going to be very interesting to watch them effort that because the other side has been so much more effective politically in terms of using the levers of political power in recent years. What are you watching for next? Because this sounds like this is not going to be an immediate change. I'm watching on four different levels, actually. The presidential election is going to be very important to this. So are the actions of the new court when it resumes again, what cases they hear, how quickly they hear them, what the rulings look like. I'm also going to be watching what happens in Congress in terms of efforts for federal legislation and what's happening state by state as this battle perhaps reverts to the states. Burger Taleb is Axios' White House and politics editor. 
Before we go, tonight, NASA is launching a new toilet up to the International Space Station. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Or in this case, womankind. Because the new design features will make the toilet easier for female astronauts to use in zero gravity. Uh, I don't think we've developed a new toilet in a couple decades. Jim Fuller helped design the new waste management system, which is smaller, easier to clean, and is worth $23 million. NASA is hoping to eventually use the toilet on missions to the moon and Mars. You know, when the astronauts have to go, we want to allow them to boldly go. That does it for us today. You can reach your team at podcasts at axios.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Nyla Boodoo. And we'd also love it if you'd share the show with someone you think might appreciate it. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And we'll see you back here tomorrow morning.